Uh, this is uh, Mike Hegner. Uh, I have the pleasure of uh, having a uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Joshua Ferris. Dr. Ferris is the Humboldt Experience Scholar Fellow at Ruhr University in Bochum in uh, Germany. Uh, and Dr. Ferris and I on a previous podcast uh, were talking about uh, neo-Cartesianism and about his uh, new book, uh, The Creation of Self, uh, which sounds ab absolutely fascinating. And Joshua, you, you had mentioned earlier that um, the neo-Cartesian viewpoint helps us to understand uh, better the relationship between the human soul and God. Um, how does that work? Yeah, well, um, I think um, there's a few different ways you can come at this question. I was recently working on an entry on theological anthropology for an encyclopedia, and um, this sort of question is has a, a sort of a wide and diverse, complex set of answers to it. Um, I think uh, going back to Thomas Aquinas and uh, his definition of human nature as being kind of the Bohethian definition of a rational animal, we could say that uh, in virtue of um, what uh, some theologians in history, like uh, Maximus, would call this sort of um, ectype uh, relationship between the soul as a rational being and the world as a as rationally structured by God, that it's rationality that links us back to God. But I think um, there's something uh, maybe even more mysterious, maybe in one sense, more transcendent. Certainly there's been different transcendent proposals within theology that have tried to um, make sense of this connection between God and humans uh, that you find in the Eastern tradition as well as in, uh, uh, in a different way in the Augustinian tradition, that uh, it's the soul's transcendence that is more mysterious, that links us to God, that we find in people like uh, John Calvin. We find different permutations of this in the Cambridge Platonist literature, where uh, emotion is, is a strong uh, feature that connects uh, humans to God, and uh, hum uh, emotions are basically, uh, well, that's an immaterial uh, property of, 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 of the soul. And it's something that links us to God. Uh, in a later history, there's been uh, further developments of imagination as being the, the prime candidate that is uh, that defines the soul and links us to God. Um, recent history, there's been a lot of literature that's been uh, put out on the nature of subjectivity. And I think um, certainly um, since the time of the existentialist following uh, Kant and uh, uh, Kant's sort of argument for the soul is as being this um, this uh, transcendental precondition that the existentialists later pick up on and the phenomenologists pick up on. Uh, there's been a recent sort of resourcing of of both phenomenologists and the existentialists in trying to make sense of this notion of subjectivity that uh, seems to be difficult to capture uh, either in materialistic ways. In the, in, in the language of science, and even in the language of analytic philosophy with its precision on sort of objective thinking, means to end thinking, um, uh, what Stephen Priest calls uh, uh, a kind of um, conditioned ways of approaching the subject. And so there's been a, a recent a plethora of, of knowledge that's been coming out uh, trying to capture this notion of subjectivity by using um, existential philosophy, phenomenology, 
Uh, I think uh, something like the notion of subjectivity, at least I gesture in this direction in the book, The Creation of Self, is what gets us closer to this link between God and humanity. And um, it may be the Imago Dei, or it may be what's fundamentally undergirding um, image bearers of God, but this notion of subjectivity um, that we are created entities created in the image of God that defies any sort of um, objective analysis and can't be brought about through these sort of generalizable processes, but instead must be created directly and immediately by an intelligent being. I think that gets us closer to the heart of kind of what's going on when we think about the Imago Dei. And this is um, something that uh, Augustine, John Calvin, and, and Descartes really bring out in uh, their understanding of the Imago Dei. I mean, Descartes talks about the Imago Dei as this catalytic idea, this sort of stationary idea that's imprinted on the soul. That's not something that is uh, certainly not materialistic. It's not changeable, but it's something that is foundational to who we are. It's just this um, stationary idea that's fixed in, in the very mind of man, not um, that we can actually, through um, kind of the light of God, we can, we can have access to it. And by having access to it, we are directly pointed to our creator. Of course, traditional um, Thomistic understanding of, of, uh, of the human person uh, is the Aristotelian one that, that we are rational animals. And that animality um, involves uh, the inability to reason. That is, that the animals, that non human animals lack this capacity for reason. Um, and I, I do think one can draw a connection between the capacity for reason, the capacity to think abstractly, to think in terms of, of universals rather than particulars, and the the image of God. That is, God is a spirit, uh, and uh, he does not need eyes or, or, or ears or a sense of touch to, uh, to know things. Um, and we to some extent, are the same way in that we can understand concepts that don't have a, a physical instantiation. So I, I, I think even just in the traditional Aristotelian Thomistic way of understanding man, I think you can get to the image of God, at least in, in that sense. You, you had mentioned um, imagination and emotion and subjectivity as um, reflections of the image of God in man, but don't animals also have those things? Aren't they? I mean, they certainly have emotions, and uh, I, I don't doubt that they have imagination. And um, subjectivity is a more difficult question. But do animals share any any of these uh, images? Yeah, uh, I think they have uh, emotions. Um, I think um, the Cambridge Platonists are talking about a more refined notion of emotion that leads us to transcendentals. And I'm not sure that they have that. They don't have the ability to cognize transcendentals. But I, I think imagination is a little trickier. The, the gentleman is, uh, uh, that has really kind of re in recent years put forward this idea and he's drawing to Platonism, but he's also tying it in with um, kind of recent uh, conceptions of uh, recent literature on, um, in art and poetry is uh, Douglas Headley where he argues that imagination is the is the um, 
the primary attribute that distinguishes humans from animals. But what 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 does he mean by uh, by imagination? Yeah, I think he um, he's describing it as something that it's the it's the capacity or the power of the soul to um, to create new things. Um, so he has in mind um, things like well things like humor for one, which Roger Scruton brings up. I mean, I don't think we. Well, I guess many would argue that animals don't have the capacity to laugh because they don't get humor. They don't get the complexities of humor. But the same goes with poetry. We don't have animals writing poetry or even gesturing toward poetry or gesturing toward fictional stories. They don't, they're not able to do that. They don't have that kind of consciousness that, that gives them those sort of imaginative powers. So he distinguishes um, imagination um, in that way, that there are these 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 different features of humanity that um, these creative capacities that really set them apart, um, and so he's he's sort of um, pushing against the sort of Bohethian definition of a rational animal that rationality isn't sufficient for for accounting for the imago dei. Something more like the imaginative capacity of of humans to create new things. But it, but it would seem that there are, are two different definitions of imagination, uh, and, and, and I think the, the, the word is used in, in, in several ways, but that boils down to two. One is the sort of traditional Aristotelian way of understanding it, that imagination is simply the, the formation of an image based on a, on a sense perception. That is that I, you know, I um, looked at an apple, and then um, I can, after that, conjure an image of an apple in my mind, or, or I can conjure the sound of a song that I like in, in my mind. And um, Aristotle argued that animals have that kind of imagination. They, they can conjure an image of a, of, a, of a piece of food or an image of an owner in their mind. Um, then there, the other kind of imagination would be the ability to create, the ability to think abstractly and to... to to do things that go beyond the concrete particular world. And I think that really is definitely a, a, a characteristic uh, of uh, the human mind that animals don't share. Uh, but it's a different thing. It's not imagination in the Aristotelian sense. It's not just making an image in your head. It's um, thinking abstractly uh, about things and creating things that didn't exist before and maybe creating things that never will have a physical existence. Yeah, I think uh, that's his that's that's his definition. He's he explicitly um, defines um, imagination in this way that there is a link between the transcendentals, the classical transcendentals of beauty, goodness, and truth, all of which are viewed as divine attributes and connect us to God. And it's through this <clears throat> through this imaginative capacity that we actually connect with God. And so he traces this out in various ways in history. So I think, yeah, that's right. That's right. So he would, he, he's, he, he has a more refined conception of imagination than right. this sort of Aristotelian conception. Very interesting. And you would mention that the, the, obviously the relationship between God and man goes in both directions. Uh, and that, um, so the, the, the neo-Cartesian way of understanding the soul helps us in uh, understanding how, man can connect to God, 
does it help us in understanding how God connects to man? Well, and so I think only insofar as it provides a a place in a material place by which we uh, got uh, by which we interact with God, by which God interacts with us. In the Platonic tradition, there's the transcendentals. God interacts us through uh, with us through the transcendentals or through the Platonic heaven that we have access to by way of this um, imago day, whatever the imago day is, this um, uh, stationary idea that that uh, provides a foundational necessary link between us and God. So yeah, all, insofar as it p- provides a kind of a place, um, place used more in a subjective sense rather than this sort of objective sense um, or physical or even physical sense, insofar as it provides a place for us to meet. Uh, I think that's uh, kind of the way that at least the Platonic tradition is using uh, this, this notion. God interacts with us in that way uh, through, through, through that means or through that place. You, we would mention before that there is a, uh, there recently has been a bit of a shift in the naturalist world, uh, that, that naturalists are starting to look at things in a somewhat different way, or at least people are looking at things in a different way that aren't the, uh, the more traditional nat- naturalism that, that we've had over the past couple of centuries. Uh, how, how is the naturalist perspective changing and, and why is it changing? Yeah, yeah, I think this is a really interesting question, and it it gets at the heart of some of the cultural discussions right now. There's a couple different ways it's changing. Um, In the history of philosophy, there was um, obviously, not to rehash too much, but in this context, I think this is important and interesting. In the history of philosophy, in in, in recent analytic philosophy, in the the mid-1900s, uh, we're, we're beginning to see this sort of shift away from logical positivism and logical behaviorism as adequate ways of making sense of consciousness. And then there's this move toward uh, more uh, identity or reductivist, reductionistic views of consciousness, trying to make sense of uh, consciousness by way of not just linguistically making sense of it, but actually um, providing some sort of ontological reduction that would get rid of the need for some sort of bridge between these two distinct types of properties, mental properties and uh, physical properties. And so uh, you have the hard problem of consciousness come on the scene with David Chalmers, who moves in this more dualistic, naturalistic dualistic direction that gives credence to the fact that there is this radical distinction between qualitative experience and quantitative measurement of physical objects in the world that we can study through science and and give mathematical equations to but or mathematical numbers to um, and we can we can quantify these sorts of things so um, in recent history you have various secularist um, views of consciousness on offer that interact with or overlap with a broader explanation for the origins of the universe um, and uh, what's really become quite popular right now is secular, what's called secular panpsychism. Um, <clears throat> panpsychism is the view that, um, that arguably takes seriously the mind, that these mind properties, these qualitative properties of phenomenal experience are, are real and that they are irreducible properties to physical things, that they cannot be reduced. They are not identical. And uh, so 
it arguably takes seriously the mind. Um, what it doesn't do is it doesn't go the further, it doesn't take the further uh, move to affirming something like substantial dualism or anything that's uh, reminiscent of, of Descartes. Um, in fact, many times he's not even uh, uh, mentioned in the discussion anymore, uh, ironically, although he probably should be, um, he's in the background there. But um, that has become pro um, really popularized through the likes of people like David Chalmers, Thomas Nagel, and more recently, Philip Goff, who's trying to uh, advance an argument of, of the origins of the universe by taking seriously the mind and taking seriously fine-tuning of, of the world without invoking design. And, um, and <laughs> they will do anything to avoid design. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, it, it's fascinating and, and these are becoming really popular and getting lots right. of, lots of attention. Um, I, so th that's one way. Yeah. I, I look upon panpsychism. Um, first of all, it's, it, I, I think it's, it's a very interesting way to look at the world and, and, and it certainly, I think is, is heading down the right track um, in that if one were a completely neutral observer, just looking at nature, looking at uh, you know physics and, 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 and chemistry and all the things going on in nature, the one thing you have to say, the most fundamental thing you have to say is that this is shot through with mind. That is that there's, <clears throat> there's, 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 there's an overwhelming presence of some kind of mind in this process. Um, and it's kind of interesting that, in fact, the one aspect of ourselves uh, with which we have a direct connection rather than an indirect connection is our own mind. That is, we experience our mind. Um, we, re we, re we rely on our senses to experience our body, to, to feel pain, to, to feel touch, to, to see our body, and so on. But we don't need senses to know our mind. We, we, we have a mind. It, it, it's, it's actually us in a sense. So in some way, mind is more fundamental than, uh, than matter. And I think the panpsychists see that. And um, so they, they try to put mind at the core of things, but of course they leave out so much. They, they, they leave out God. Uh, they, 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 they leave out a deeper understanding. I think the biggest critique that one can make of, of, of panpsychism is that you have to define what the threshold is for mind. That is, does every electron have a mind? And do, do quarks within the electron have in, in independent minds? Are there discussions among the quarks <laughs> that determine what the electron does? Where does the mind cut off? You know, how, how subatomic do you have to get before you're, you don't have a mind? Um, and I don't think that's a question the panpsychists can answer. No, I think you're right. I think they don't give an answer. They just presume it as as fact. And if it is fact, then it makes sense of of the fine tuning problem without invoking um, an intelligent designer. Or, well, I guess it depends on how we're defining intelligence and the <clears throat> properties that we ascribe to it. Certainly not a personalized designer. Uh, certainly not theism. Um, it's um, at least the secular versions on offer uh, that are trying to get away from any sort of design consequence are trying to, well, they would say, Philip Goff would say at the most fundamental 
level of, of physical particles, there are, well, there are physical particles and there are minds or, or, or mindlets of some sort or, or um, that, uh, that are these mind potencies that uh, are mind-like, uh, at least like our minds, but they're certainly not of this, the same sort of sophistication of our minds. And so this makes sense of fine-tuning without, without, without invoking some sort of underlying uh, mind as in um, so these secularists are, are even distinguishing themselves from a view that is a sort of you might call it a sort of theism um, although it's a kind of um, impersonalized theism and that is Bernardo Castro's view which is uh, a kind of analytic well he calls it analytic idealism but there is this under undergirding metaphysical reality of the mind that makes sense of um, the universe and uh, what these naturalist secularists are doing, they're arguing is something different even from Bernardo's view, which I think ironically Bernardo's view is actually closer to theism in some ways sure. than they are because sure. they're saying at the most fundamental level, there are these along with someone like Bertrand Russell, they're saying that there are these physical properties as well as mental properties that mm -hmm. exist and they're just brutes that, um, and they kind of get cagey when you start asking them or pressing them about, well, what about the contingency of those mental, con um, uh, those minds, or even um, our minds that uh, are, are new, novel, sui generis, as philosophers would say, they are contingent consciousnesses. How do you make sense of that? And, um, I think Bernardo Kastrup has a better answer for that. Theists have a better answer. But these um, many of these naturalists don't give an answer. They just accept it as a brute contingent that needs no further explanation. Right. And um, I think that's I think that's deeply unsatisfying. And that's right. uh, one of the biggest problems with their views. I think um, there's other problems with um, having these distinct types of properties without a distinct types of substance. I think their view actually lends itself to some sort of substance dualism, but um, but the even more fundamental problem is how do they make sense of these brute contingent consciousnesses that come into existence uh, out of nowhere? Um, what's the explanation? And uh, I think they they just don't have an explanation. They don't they don't press any further beyond to to provide some sort of hypothesis that would explain those contingencies in the world yeah, you, you you really get the sense that naturalists are, are sort of groping in the dark that they they have these intuitions of the truth they 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 you know not you know in in the past uh, just a, a, a strict materialism and even now there's a, there's a lot of materialism particularly eliminated materialism out there in the uh, naturalist world um but some are moving away from it they're still groping in the in the dark and then they kind of recognize that mind is is such a fundamental thing that you can't just explain it away so now they're going to panpsychism maybe they'll get to theism eventually so i, just, I want to thank you joshua it's been wonderful speaking with you and um please stay stay tuned for our our next podcast and uh thank you for joining us at mind matters news This has been Mind Matters News. 
Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.